Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Response letters to the SEC's climate disclosure proposal are in, thousands and thousands of them. And like many of our listeners, we wanted to get a sense of what different stakeholder groups and respondents thought about the proposal. That number is staggering, that 14,000 letters, but even that is almost understated about the level of interest. Returning to the podcast today is Valerie Weeman. Val's a partner in our national office, and together we led the charge, sifting through the over 14,000 responses to the proposal. Val's here today to help provide perspective on the contents of the responses, how the responses varied across different stakeholder groups, and what key issues emerged that were common themes. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get started. So Val, welcome to the podcast. Looking forward to our conversation today about the more than 14,000 letters that have been submitted to the SEC in response to its proposed climate disclosure rules. And I'll just start with some background to say that the vast majority of those letters, so more than 90% of them, were either one of 20 different form letters. So those would be letters that were written as a template and then submitted multiple times by different individuals or non-form letters that were received from individuals. And then the remaining approximately 1,000 letters were what we're going to focus on today. One other key point that I thought was of interest before we get into sort of the detail of, I'll call it the quote-unquote more substantive letters, the most common of those form letters only had seven sentences. It was submitted over 6,000 times, and that specifically supported the SEC adopting strong climate disclosure document as soon as possible because the feeling was that it would help hold companies accountable. So definitely sort of, I'll call it a public sentiment that was supportive, although we did see coming from both the agricultural um, sector as well as the energy sector, some of these form letters that were opposed to the proposal. So again, that's a lot of background um, around the sort of individual speakers or the individuals who submitted uh, responses. But Val, I know the more than thousands, probably what our people are tuning in for. And at the, before I get to the 1000, what I wanted to say is that number is staggering, that 14,000 letters, but even that is almost understated. There was one letter that was submitted from an individual that actually was 1300 pages long. And um, in the letter, they say that there were more than 64,000 signatures on that letter. And that letter was supportive of the proposal. So even the number of letters that were submitted, as we'll get into, a lot of them were submitted by groups of respondents, um, by groups of companies. So even that count, as staggering as it seems, is still really under stated about the level of interest. Well, and particularly, Val, I know we didn't do a scientific survey, but when we look at the fact that most SEC proposals are getting, you know, 100 responses, a few hundred responses, again, that number is kind of staggering. But again, if we get into the approximately 1,000 letters that were submitted from different stakeholder groups. Let's start with sort of the groups that we bucketed them into. And I'll preface this by saying, Val, I know that in doing this bucketing, there's a lot of judgment involved because there is some overlap. So again, for our listeners' sake, 
all of what we're about to talk about is generalities, is to give you some sense, some direction of where the letters were coming from. If someone else had looked at the letters or they had looked at different letters, they may have found something different. So with that preface, what are the eight groups that we looked at? So we looked at them and we started with the investors. So that included pension funds, groups that were uh, representing investors, uh, we also looked at registrants and companies. So that was a little bit easier to identify. That was both public and private entities. The third group would be industry groups. Those are organizations or coalitions of entities within specific sectors, usually. So those were um, usually uh, formal uh, industry organizations that had submitted letters. You also had public policy and not-for-profit organizations. Now, these entities generally represented a cause, whether they were uh, the World Wildlife Fund or um, even unrelated to uh, the environment. So there was an organization, for example, the Americans for Tax Reform. So anything that really had a specific cause that were submitting letters. We then had academics who were usually individual professors, but a few of them did represent universities as a whole or groups of universities. Uh, then the last couple we had were professional services firms. So that's where we included accounting, auditing, legal, some engineers and some consulting organizations. Uh, we had governmental where we classified anything that came from members of Congress, um, mayors, uh, any other governmental entities like governors and attorneys general, uh, we put in that bucket. And then the last one was standard setters, um, which actually there were almost 20 standard setters that submitted letters. I thought that was interesting um, because it was both domestic and international. For example, the, the French accounting standard setter submitted a letter. All right. So then Val, uh, before we get into some of the details, any overall themes that you would highlight that we saw? So I think with that population, Heather, we've talked about this, it was really hard to get a trend because the responses ranged from, you know, complete support for the proposal to complete opposition to the proposal and everything in the middle. So anything we tried to do um, is really sort of as you teed it up in the beginning, kind of broad strokes. Uh, and we tried to develop some of the observations by looking at a sample of letters that were in each category. And again, similar to, uh, as you talked about classification between categories, we, if we picked different letters, if we picked more letters, I think we would have had some different trends. Uh, so overall, we tried to be unbiased, but I would say that the views, um, for the ones that supported generally cited the need for a mandatory disclosure to support consistent and high quality climate disclosure. And a lot of times those letters were really just as simple as that. Sometimes they were, you know, a paragraph long where they would just say that they uh, appreciated the role that disclosure had and the related accountability they thought that would come with it. Uh, and other times it was pages and pages, both in support or sometimes in opposition. So when they opposed it, um, some of them, and here's where some of the judgment comes into play. The ones who supported the proposal sometimes had recommendations for improvement. The ones that opposed the proposal sometimes had recommendations or on the same topic areas were thought that they were so inoperable, that they were so complex and onerous provisions that we actually classified those as being um, opposed to the proposal. Um, so you really had the full gamut of responses. Okay, so then Val, let's dig in a little to these different categories. And again, cannot caveat enough, this is all directional. So for our listeners, if you looked at different letters and, and came to something different, it's probably because we looked at a different population. But I do think this is helpful directionally. So 
Starting then with the investor population. So Val, this was about 150 of the respondents that we looked at. And I know it included, as you said, these large institutional investors, retirement and pension plan sponsors, and then numerous investor organizations. Uh, as you looked at those letters, what are some of the overall trends that you saw? So I think among the investor group, there was general support, and that's not unexpected, right? So the uh, original purpose from the SEC was to enhance the disclosures to make sure that uh, investors were receiving decision-useful information. And that bore out in the sample that we reviewed. Now, granted, we reviewed about 35 of that 150, but about 97% were either supportive or strongly supportive of the proposal. And I think there was only one that was really opposed to it. Now, we didn't do a statistical sample of that population. We tended to pick the larger institutional investors. We did scan additional letters that came from smaller and retail investors, and we found a little bit more opposition there. But if I had to ballpark, I'd say probably still north of 80% uh, that supported the proposal uh, from that regard. And then within that population, they had various commentary. Uh, I'd say they were largely supportive of the emissions disclosures, uh, definitely universally supportive of the scope one and scope two. Uh, in some of them, they did uh, acknowledge that the scope three would be a little bit more um, difficult or there was a little bit more of a challenge for companies to gather the scope three emissions, but they did support it um, as well as a few of them suggested actually more people support or include the scope three emissions. As you know, the smaller reporting companies are not required to include it. Um, a couple of the letters actually suggested that they be included in the population. Uh, Val, I'm going to jump in here because one of the things that really stood out for me in looking at those, as you said, almost universal support for scope one and scope two, I did think it was interesting that so many of them acknowledged that this would be a challenge for preparers. And there were a number of suggestions around more time or alternatives such as delays in adoption or furnishing the information. So again, I do think, although there was, as we saw in the letters, we looked at this broad support, there was also acknowledgement that this is not necessarily going to be easy. So I thought that's a key point. Val, maybe... Anything else that really stood out? I know there's always interest in whether or not people are supportive of putting information in the footnotes. So what do we see about that? We definitely looked at that specifically. Um, so of the letters we reviewed, 15 or about 40% explicitly supported the disclosures being in the footnotes. Now, within that population, nine of them did suggest that the 1% disclosure threshold was perhaps too low, um, which is similar to what, and we'll get to what we saw from a company standpoint, um, with a couple of them thought that you should use either traditional materiality, or I think there was one or two that suggested that it should be something higher, like a 5% threshold. Um, but generally, uh, you know, almost half of the letters that we looked at, more than half of the letters, uh, did think that the 1% was too low. All right. And then the other thing that probably stood out for me on these letters, and I think this is fair to say there's a trend we saw across all the categories that company or letters respondents that mentioned anything related to international, international alignment and coordination. So basically either the International Sustainability Standards Board or reference to CSRD, which are the proposed uh, European requirements, um, were supportive and emphasized importance of international. So I think pretty much across the board, companies were either silent, or I shouldn't say companies, respondents were either silent 
or said it was important. So I, I thought that was something that was interesting. That's fair. No one, no one who mentioned international was against that sort of alignment. Yes, or equivalency. Exactly. And even as you say that, it kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Why? Just given, I think, difficulty for both investors and preparers, if there's multiple different schemes that they have to deal with. So then Val, with that sort of as a bridge, let's move on then to the category of registrants and companies. And I know in this category, we saw around 270 letters, let's say 25% of the population. And um, there was, again, I think a mix here of support, but probably again, more support versus opposition to the proposal. But what are the, some of the things that stood out for you here? So we looked at about 50 of these letters. And again, it was not a statistical sample of the population. Um, I would say the bulk of them were probably within the Fortune 500, Fortune 1000. So sort of name brand companies that you would recognize. And um, I would say 88% mathematically when we did our assessment uh, were supportive of the proposal. Um, but about half of them supported with what we would characterize as more significant modifications. So while they started the letter talking about how they supported the need for an SEC mandate, they were fine with there being new rules. They had some more significant concerns um, as we read them on places that it could be improved on uh, disclosures that they didn't think were either meaningful or where they thought they could actually improve the operationality. Um, and then there were uh, six letters within that population who, who actually did uh, oppose the uh, recommendations uh, pre- pretty strongly. All right. And then maybe what are a couple of the comments that stood out and then for you, and I'll share a few that stood out for me as well. Well, I think the first one, similar to investors, you have to talk about the 1% threshold. Um, and there was Universal, I would say three quarters of the letters that we reviewed discussed the bright line threshold and none of them thought that the 1% was a good disclosure. And, th- and that was not surprising to us yes. either. Um, but they were um, really suggested that uh, similar to the investors that you align more with traditional financial statement materiality. Uh, and then 20 uh, companies actually thought that uh, it was unclear how to apply materiality and maybe the disclosures would be too granular of a level. So maybe they didn't mention the 1%, but they did think that uh, perhaps the footnotes had gone a little bit far. So Heather, within the footnote disclosures, I'd say half of our sample um, mentioned the footnote disclosures with, again, near universal opposition. Uh, they really thought that it lacked operationality. Uh, and some of them actually suggested that the SEC shouldn't really even be requiring footnote disclosures. They suggested that perhaps um, it was something that was better left to the FASB and it should have been referred there. Okay, so then Val, I think from my perspective, there's probably no surprise that almost three quarters of the companies that we looked at had concerns about the proposed timeline. And there was, there were numerous suggestions to delay for a year, but we even saw proposals to delay up, up to five years. I also would say we did see, um, companies commenting on the comparative information. And just as a reminder to the listeners that in the proposal, effectively comparative information would be required even at adoption if the information was, let's just call it available. It's a little more specific than that. Um, but of the companies that commented on it here, 16 companies did express the need for prospective adoption. And that's actually consistent, I know, Val, with what we put in our letter. Uh, one other thing, maybe, do you want to talk a little bit about greenhouse gases? Yeah. So uh, similar to the investors, they were generally supportive of the scope one and scope two emission disclosures. Actually, 44 of the 50 uh, generally supported the broad proposal and didn't have any specific uh, 
opposition to the scope one and two. Uh, from a scope three standpoint, 70% of the companies mentioned the scope three disclosure requirements. And then of that population, almost a third opposed it, suggesting that it either be eliminated or it be voluntary. Um, others, uh, even if they didn't oppose it outright, suggested that they had concerns around the data quality, uh, with seven of them suggesting that maybe the categories, because as you know, there's 15 categories within scope three. Uh, some of them suggested that maybe not all of them be required to be disclosed, that those that would be required should be narrowed to only a couple. All right. Then the other thing probably on uh, greenhouse gases that we should mention is frequent listeners will remember that the SEC proposal does suggest different organizational boundaries than what companies may be using under their current greenhouse gas reporting, because the SEC is proposing that that be consistent with the financial statements, whereas uh, the greenhouse gas protocol has some uh, other options. So of the letters we reviewed, a third of them actually expressed concerns around that, and uh, none of them supported the SEC's proposed boundaries. So they either were opposed or they were silent. Um, I will say, as frequent listeners know, this is one area where PwC actually did support what the SEC was is proposing because we think it's very important for the information, financial and non-financial, to be aligned. Uh, that said, I think we're empathetic and understand this alternative view that was expressed in, as I said, so many of the letters. Uh, Val, anything else on the companies or should we move on to industry groups? No, I think maybe just the uh, question on international alignment. Um, there were a couple of foreign private issuers in our population, but again, those who mentioned international alignment, about 17 of our companies, um, did emphasize the importance of coordination and alignment, as well as coming up with a process for um, equivalency. So perhaps uh, some of the disclosures prepared for other jurisdictions could satisfy some of the requirements for the SEC. Yeah, and I think to that point, Val, what's interesting, as you said, is that only about five of the companies in our sample were foreign private issuers, but we did see a much broader level of comment on that. And, you know, our speculation here would be that multinational companies across the board are looking at these different reporting schemes and saying it's going to be difficult, the more alignment, the better. And again, that's consistent, as I said, with what we saw from investors. So Val, let's move on then to industry groups. I know there were about 200 industry groups that submitted letters. Uh, I also know we took a little bit different approach to this analysis and kind of segregated them by industry and then gave some sort of broad trends here. Um, this is one of the areas I thought was most interesting, but what can you share with us broadly about what we saw? I was going to start by saying that I know this is one of your, your pet groups exactly. that you enjoyed <laughs> digging into on this one. So we reviewed of the about 200 letters that were received, we reviewed about a third of them, about 60. Uh, and the one thing I thought that you and I both thought was a little bit surprising was the concentration within uh, agriculture. So industry groups, and those could have been anything from uh, farm bureaus of various states. There were, um, I think, the egg bureau. There were uh, a lot of dairy uh, entities as well. So uh, those actually represented um, about 25% of the overall letters received. And we reviewed about 16 of those from an agricultural standpoint. From an industry standpoint, the second most popular was actually uh, energy, utilities, and mining. So we reviewed about 60 letters and about half of those were actually opposed or strongly opposed to the proposal. Uh, and we thought that was interesting because it's um, more slanted toward the negative than from the individual companies that we had seen. 
Uh, and again, just hypothesizing here, but um, it could be that really there's strength in numbers that these industry groups, when you had a group of entities that were as a whole and not individually identified, it seemed to be a little bit easier to express more of the opposition and more of the uh, the points that they had concerns with rather than the companies who submitted individual letters. So from that population, like I said, half of them were opposed or strongly opposed and then um, there was actually three quarters of the ones who supported it were only supportive if it were modified. And there's really only one letter that we would classify as strongly supportive. So um, really a, a very different makeup of that population than what we saw in individual companies. Well, yes, in particular, I think, Val, when you look at the opposed and strongly opposed, half of those, so basically a quarter of the whole population we reviewed were strongly opposed. And I will also say that supportive, if modified, a flip way of looking at it is opposed unless it's modified. So, you know, depending which slant you want to put on that, that could also be almost viewed as being quote unquote opposed. Val, I know you gave us the agricultural and EUNM, which is again, about half of the total population. And just to make it clear here, we only reviewed 60 letters, but we did categorize by sector all 200 or so. Again, probably with some judgment here. Um, but as Val said, about 23% of the total was agricultural. Another 23 was EUNM. And then the, the next category with, uh, about 40, one or about 40 of the letters, 20% were from financial services. And then we had, 22, 20 or so that we called, I'll call it corporate. So this would be maybe like a group of investor relations or, you know, CEOs or otherwise, uh, 20 letters or so that were other trade and then followed by manufacturing, transportation and tech, but each had a handful of letters. So definitely interesting makeup of letters there. And as you said, Val, I do think this sort of more quote unquote negative slant was interesting. One other point. I would make here is that there were international associations as well included in the broader sample. And I do think this is again across the board. Something that was interesting was just to see the number of international respondents. Again, not having done extensive analysis of other, uh, Common letter responses, this did seem to have more of an international flavor than maybe we even expected. So Val, another area where, you know, I was quite interested to looking at these letters was public policy and not for profit. So how many of those and, and what types of things did we see there? So in total, there were about 150 public policy and not for profit letters. Um, and as I mentioned, they represented a range of interests and usually sort of a common cause. Uh, and we would classify those that about, uh, I'd say 40% were environmental Another 10% were focused on energy concerns. Another 8% were corporate, um, with about a third of those being more general government and, and public policy interests. Uh, so among those letters, I'd say they were largely supportive. Um, although I do think, well, I do know that the letters were a little bit more narrow in scope. So they tended not to comment on the full range of uh, topics that were covered by the proposal. Some of them focused specifically on scope disclosures. Some of them were just supportive in a general sense or in opposition in a general sense. Uh, but I'd say uh, the, the top three areas that were mentioned in these letters were probably uh, related to scope three disclosures and wanting them, again, to include the smaller reporting companies that are as proposed would be exempt. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm going to add in there, Val, so to be clear, 
it, these letters were supportive of scope three, which is different, obviously, than what we saw in some of those other categories. I agree. Yes. Um, and then uh, also recommendations, even though they supported it, they also did see areas where they could improve definitions or clarification uh, in order to uh, make sure that there was sort of a common interpretation of how the terms are used in the proposal. Um, so they supported, but again, wanted a little bit more clarification. And then the third area was a pretty common suggestion that the rules be flexible enough to allow for changes in the environment, changes in greenhouse gases, changes in technology to make sure that the final rule was flexible enough to really be able to adapt as the times changed. All right. And I, I do think a couple other interesting points here. You did give some samples of the types of respondents, but just to add a few more to give people a flavor. So we saw letters from like the Sierra Club, World Wildlife Fund. I think Val mentioned that one. Consumer Reports, World Resource Institute. So pretty broad range of, of letters there. Um, I will say when we looked at the more, I'll call it substantive letters in opposition to the proposal, the types of things that they cited were arguments around the SEC's lack of legal authority, harm to investors, which is sort of opposite than what we heard in some of the other places, harm to the economy and capital markets, significant costs of compliance, and then negative impacts specifically to the energy sector. Uh, and interestingly, none of these, what I'll call more substantive negative letters, actually had commentary or recommendations regarding specific rules. So in all these other categories we looked at, I would say even in some of the more negative letters, there were recommendations. But in this case, they were just, I'd say, negative. Again, just based on a sample. So someone else may have found something differently, something different, but that's what we saw in the letters we looked at. Uh, Val, moving on then, this is a, a topic I know you actually spent a little more time on, which was looking at these letters from academics. I think there were 75 in total, and we looked at about a third of those. Uh, so what did you find in those? So the academics, there were, of those 25 letters that we looked at, nine of them actually addressed specifically the SEC's legal authority to adopt the climate proposal rules. And we saw that as a flavor in some of the other categories as well. Um, but among that population, they were pretty evenly split as to whether they did have the authority or they did not have the authority. And one of them raised the question, and honestly, we couldn't tell whether they were for or against it. So that's why we say that it was half and half on a, on a population of nine. Um, but in general, they tended to comment on the potential increases in litigation costs and concerns around the application of materiality in a general sense and not really questioning the specific rules. Um, some of them submitting sometimes some of their own research papers or or other research papers that um, supported or um, opposed the need for disclosure, or uh, to be honest, some of the other uh, support for the overall impact of climate change as a whole. Um, we also reviewed two letters that uh, discussed the science around climate change. So one of them supported it, and one of them was against it. So again, this is why it was really difficult to come up with these overall themes. All right. So then, Val, let's move on and talk about professional services. Uh, and this category, there's, again, around 70 letters. What I thought was interesting here is there's no surprise. There was, a, you know, 25 letters from accounting firms, about 20 letters from legal, um, so law firms. But then there were actually about 20 letters that were from, I'll call it climate or other emissions-related consulting. So it sort of makes sense that they were responding, but I think that was a bit of a surprise for us. And then maybe 10 or so other 
professional services. And obviously, those numbers I gave do not add up to 70 because I was rounding uh, when I was talking about those. But Val, I know there's a lot here, but any overall trends that you could speak to either from the accounting firms or the law firms? I'd say the accounting firms were largely supportive, um, although they did raise recommendations as we did in our letter, um, which somewhat characterize it as pretty significant recommendations to improve operationality and uh, just the ability to apply it more consistently and to really elicit something that people thought was more um, decision useful for investors. Um, but I'd say that the accounting firms were, were largely supportive and tended to comment on a broad base of the proposals. When I look at the law firms, those were a little bit narrower. They tended to repeat some of the issues for the companies that they generally represent. So uh, issues with the footnote disclosures, the 1% materiality, uh, sometimes on the scope emissions. The law firms then also, um, as we discussed in some of the public policy, did mention the legal authority of the SEC, either for or against, uh, as well as some questions about the safe harbor provisions uh, and whether those were sufficient and how it would play out under the securities laws. Um, so a little bit more of the, the the true legal flavor within those letters. And then among the climate proposal, that population included uh, some companies who are currently providing attest services on emissions. And those tended to be, again, supportive uh, and generally, again, not surprising, supported the ability of non-public accounting firms to provide attestation. Uh, and also um, some of them were more general sustainability or engineering companies who tend to assist uh, companies in their environmental journey, in which case they were also supportive of the disclosure. So something that stood out for me in looking at those, I'll call it engineering firm letters, is that there were actually several of the ones we looked at that recommended the use of actual emissions data in lieu of allowing the use of estimates. So it's kind of a uh, contrast to where we saw companies saying even doing these estimates is going to be difficult. And then here you had some advocating for use of like continuous emissions monitoring and the like. Other thing I'd point out when you're talking about the accounting firms, we did um, focus our analysis on the larger firms. Uh, but I did think it's interesting, Val, that there was universal opposition to the 1% disclosure threshold. I think we're too grounded in our concepts of materiality to be comfortable uh, with something like that. And then I was also um, saw that all the firms did have strong comments encouraging the SEC global involvement, as well as you know s- supporting the International Sustainability Standards Board. So repeating that trend I talked about earlier, we saw that in these letters. Correct. All right. So kind of rounding things out to two more categories, uh, moving on to governmental, we saw about 35 letters that were, came from legislators, current and former regulators, and various state and federal governmental agencies. And I know, Val, you reviewed many of these letters. Probably hard to find trends, but maybe just give a few highlights. There really were no trends. This category, you know, as much as you like your industry groups, I like the governmental because I just found it really entertaining. Uh, there were over a hundred U.S. senators and a hundred, um, sorry, mix of senators and members of the House of Representatives who signed letters in support of the proposal and over a hundred senators and representatives who signed letters that were against the proposal, usually in batches. So we saw letters from 130 at a time or 50 at a time where they were a single letter sponsored by a single uh, congressman or senator then signed by a group. Uh, so there were pretty much even numbers for and against. And we saw the same thing happen when you look at letters from the state attorneys general. So out of 
the 50 states plus D.C., so 51, there were actually 44 of them signed a letter either for or against the proposal. And again, pretty evenly split, um, as well as the, the really interesting ones as well was that there were two letters from different former SEC commissioners. Um, and I think one of them had four former commissioners and one of them, I think, had three former commissioners uh, that came out. Uh, specifically on the SEC's regulatory mandate to issue the rules. One group supported it, and one group said that they had gone beyond the mandate and should not issue the rules. So within that full population, it really was sort of a stark, there are for or against, and there were an equal number of letters on both sides of that argument. Well, and to your point on the attorneys general, we also saw that some of them signed more than one version. So they were sponsored by different states and they kind of signed on to more than one. So I found that interesting the other letter in this category that stood out to me and, and Val uh, knows this is from coming from my power and utilities background is that the EPA, so the Environmental Protection Agency, also submitted a letter itself, which was basically refuting the claims that we saw in some other letters uh, related to GHG emissions. And basically the point that they were making is that the GHG emissions that are submitted to the EPA and then that do ultimately become public are really intended for a different purpose and for a different timeline and so would not meet the same need. So interesting that they actually weighed in on that debate. All right, final category, Val, standard setters. I think this is another category we were probably surprised at the number of respondents, uh, and there were almost 20, and both domestic and international. So what did, any common themes from them? Yeah, I'm not sure if you had asked me, I could have come up with 19 different standard setters uh, from a full population. But so there were letters from all of them. Uh, and I'd say the common theme here was about global uh the importance of global standards and encouraging collaboration with both the ISSB, um, the International Sustainability Standards Board, um, as well as participation in the process developing the uh, the EU standards in response to the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive. Um, so I'd say that that was pretty um pretty common among all of them wanting that consistency. Um, but I'd say for the whole, they really were supportive of the need for mandatory disclosures. It was more um in those generalities supporting, a lot of them were not very specific about the individual provisions, uh, although a, a few respondents did suggest that the rules be expanded to go broader than just the climate. Uh, as, as you know, some of the international standards cover more broadly on the ESG frame, so a couple of them did suggest that they cover things like human rights or biodiversity. But I'd say they were overall supportive of the proposal and definitely supportive of the international alignment and equivalency. All right. That's helpful perspective. So Val, maybe to wrap things up, I'd probably emphasize again to our listeners that this is all intended to be directional. It's based on the samples that we looked at. Someone else could have found something different if they had looked at the letters. Um, I will say that we are aware that the SEC staff will read all of these letters and summarize all the letters. So just from our own work that we did, I, I know that they have a big task ahead of them. Uh, Val, what's the latest in terms of what we're expecting to see from the SEC or we we just don't know at this point? I guess among those choices, I would choose the we just don't know at this point. Um, I think there are still a lot of people who think we'll see a proposal before the end of the year. Um, some guessing in the late September, October timeframe. But honestly, it's a lot to get through. I have no doubt that they've already obviously started the process well before the final deadline. So they probably had a jump on it, uh, in which case um, there's still the possibility we could have it by the end of the year. But clearly a lot of work that has to get done between now and then. All right. Well, Val, as always, really appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Heather. 
That does it for today. Join me back here next week for new podcast episodes. On Tuesday, we're launching a new toolkit series focused on compensation. And on Thursday, we have more ESG reporting content for you with a focus on the ISSB's ESG reporting proposal. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.